I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. So my latest guest, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, a, well, a phenomenal partner in crime in the One Heat Minute podcast, uh, an absolutely overwhelmingly and scarily talented writer for Brightwall Darkroom and for Cinephilia and Beyond, and the host of an upcoming podcast that deep dives into Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice one increment at a time, hence its title, Increment Vice. Travis Woods, welcome to the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Thank you, Blake. Bless your heart, you little cherub. You're so sweet. Every time I come on, you say something so nice. But I, I, you know, I told you, I told you I was going to do this, and I don't feel like any of the other guests have done it enough. As a man as steeped as you are in the, the heist movie mythos, the rules of the heist movie that are are laid so bare in a little movie called Heat, with which I think you're acquainted. Slightly. Like, like Neil McCulley, Blake, you got out. You were in the tunnel. You were home free. <laughs> we, sent, we sent you off, and you were out. And he... he you know how this movie ends. If you come back for a second score, you know how this ends. And I just, I don't know. You're pushing fate, buddy. You're, pu- I, you're pushing fate. I, I feel you. I feel you. And just as planes fly over LA, and I can hear them in the background, <laughs> I think it's even more apt. You've just had, timed the flights to, to be exactly that moment. Um, <laughs> Luke. And, and I just want to say this, too. And you know, you've heard... There's a certain prequel that might be in the making, and you promised me. You promised me. <laughs> well, if look, there's a heat prequel, you will bring one heat minute back. You'll bring it back to me. Well, it look, I this is what I'll say. 100% if there is a heat prequel, I'm, it's coming back. That is that is undeniable and unequivocal. And anyone who's listening to now Mohicans and you're still on the one heat minute productions new, new feed, um, you would see that that's, that's, that's what happens. It is what it is. But I will just say that I just simply couldn't resist, Trav, when you have the opportunity to speak to Mr. Man again, as I have, right up front, really quickly turn around this opportunity to talk to him. It felt so gross to 
only speak for an hour about what I consider another phenomenal masterpiece quality movie from him in that incredible run that kind of starts in 1992 with Mohicans and sort of goes all the way, if you like, to Collateral, in that incredible run of movies, and even Vice. Um, and and I felt really gross that I would only speak to him for an hour and maybe it would be a bonus. So I thought it would be a nice little cool thing for people who are fans of One Heat Minute to listen to, but at the same time, it was kind of gross. So, so then what did I do? I had to, you know, the score, it was... It was it, you know, it was gift wrapped. It, it was almost like Kelso was sitting there showing me spreadsheets. Like, you it's know, just in is, the air. You just have to know how to grab it. You just got to know how to grab it. So what I did yeah. was just like, you know, I had Kelso whispering in my ear, the muse, if you like, it occurred to me. And I threw, I cast the line out to, you know, some of the most phenomenally creative and insightful people that I could think of. Um, some of them who joined me on One Heat Minute, some of them knew. And what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what? I forgot you're best friends with Michael Mann now, so <laughs> you, you, you get an out, you get a chat with him about all his movies, so I get it, well, I get it, look, I get and, it. You're tempting and, fate, though, you're tempting fate. And can I just say, for everyone who thinks that Travis is saying that I should have got out, he's also the first person who starts to chime in and get the dominoes happening of that I now have to do every Michael Mann movie. So there's also, <laughs> on the one oh, hand... <laughs> I am I, I am chomping at the bit for a Miami Vice podcast. I am ready. I am I, I am ready. Like, I have I got the skill sets. I got the skill sets. I got the go-fast boats. I am ready. And I'm I just, ready for Vice. I'm just hoping that you can speak Haitian. Um, uh, because <laughs> the doors may be ready to kick down on that one. But all importantly, you and I are going to be collaborating on a nice little fun podcast coming up. Increment oh, yeah, something. yeah, something yeah. like that. In- yeah. Increment Vice, we're going to talk about a movie which is as far as humanly possible from the movie we're going to be talking about today, I think. <laughs> yeah, pretty but much. Yeah, that's going to be fun. You, uh, you and I were... Um, we're betrothed now or something it's like uh, we're stuck together well which i don't mind you're a great guy to talk to i enjoy <laughs> even though even though you, i don't know if everyone at home can hear it, he does remind me that he's pals with michael mann and i'm not i do not i, <laughs> no, I know i and know, I, and I know. I, there's I, only one man that i know that i can talk to that i can say i'm pals with i guess palish with is the lovely dante spinotti because oh. For folks who are now listening to this episode with Travis and I, you've heard me speak to the lovely Dante Spinotti on his birthday from his Italian home. He decided to take time out to talk Mohicans with me. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, I can say, is a pal and answers all my emails. Uh, Michael Mann is still, you know, the insanely uh, passionate creative that he is and is just moving on and lo- along in this perpetual motion that I only hope to have at his age. Um, and uh, he requires a, a team around him to help support all of the craziness and the creativity that he has. So, look, mate, I got you to come back. We've talked a lot about crime films. You yourself are a massive crime nerd. Um, and and modern portrayals of masculinity and crime are kind of you know in your firmly in your wheelhouse. So I'm dragging you back to the summer of 1757. Almost could be <laughs> almost could be an album. Summer of 1757 um, to the sweaty uh, to the sweaty frontier, the steamy frontier on more ways than one. Uh, and to talk about one of the greatest endings I think to almost any movie ever made, Last of the Mohicans. And so it's. What, you, what Where are you on Mohicans? Where does it sit, knowing that this isn't necessarily your genre? But is it where, where is it? where is it sat for you as a guy who's so you know such a a crime aficionado? Well, not just a crime aficionado, but you know, 
a man obsessive, <laughs> I'm like, I'm M-A-N-N, um, although I am, I, uh, anyone who's read my stuff, I am also drawn to like cinematic portrayals of masculinity, but, um, but M-A-N-N, man, obsessive, um, you know, I'll be honest, this is one of those that I maybe take in once every 10 years. Yes. Mohicans. And I, I see now that that has actually been, it's been a mistake to have done that because I rewatched it prepping for this podcast. I don't think I've seen it since god maybe jeez i don't know maybe the year before college um or or maybe my first year of college and i remember just thinking yeah that's that's, that's a good it's a well-made movie it's it's exciting daniel day lewis god he he, he runs a whole lot <laughs> um yeah he's do, he's got some great cardio but you know like i think a lot of people i watched the film and it just seemed like such an outlier to me yes. in the as I'm sure a lot of people say to you it seemed like such an outlier in the man filmography like just a little bit more mannish than let's say uh, The Keep but right out there in that kind of Neptune Pluto zone yes uh, uh, but but that said you know what's interesting is you know I enjoyed it I thought it was fine uh, but it didn't it didn't sit in my heart the way Heat does, and especially the way Thief does, or even the way Jericho Mile does. Yes. And then, because of this podcast, I, I went back and I was like, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to absorb this as a grown-ass man. <laughs> uh, and you know what's amazing? What's, what's really amazing, and I can understand why there's some hesitancy on the parts of some people to watch it, because they want, they want Michael Mann, they want leather jackets, they want rain-slick streets, they want Chicago or Los Angeles, um, you know, they want Jimmy Kahn slapping people around, speaking without contractions. But what's amazing is you, you, you watch this movie, and it's, it's crazy how it is so consumed with the, all of the thematic preoccupations that define man's work. Yes. Most especially, you know, you know, you know, Blake, I have a dream. <laughs> I have one where I, I have one where I'm drowning. I gotta wake I gotta wake myself up and start breathing or I'll die in my sleep. And uh, as as Neil McCauley tells us, you know what that's about? It's about having enough time. And if there is I think a a central, central obsessive theme that runs through all of man's work just like a red a neon red thread it is how time is this it's this crucial catalyzing pressure uh, and time, time is luck exactly exactly you have Frank in thief saying yeah look I have run out of time I have lost it all Neil in heat uh, I know life is short whatever time you get is luck, luck. is and Isabella, she gets that, that she's, you know, what did she say in Miami, Miami Vice? She's like, I had that fortune. It said, leave now. Life is short. Time, Time is, is luck. luck. You've got Lickety Split trying to beat the Olympic record and Jer- running, uh, running the Olympic record in Jericho Mile. You got Will Graham chasing the Tooth Fairy, and he's got the, uh, he's literally, the lunar cycle literally, countdown. He's literally got the lunar cycle counting yes. down how much you're going to run out of time. <laughs> yes. Time in Michael Mann's films, it is always this spotlit, irrevocable force that, you have to, that has to be reckoned with. It has to be wrestled against. It has to be submitted to. And can I can I just whisper one to you because I know that you're a boxing fan. One of my yeah. favorite one of my favorite lines ever is uh, self narration by Will Smith in Ali sitting in the corner seventh round Kinshasa Zaire, and he's whispering to himself he's got a second win he's he doesn't know that the second win's out there for him 
you got to get up you got to do it now and so as that lovely ring girl walks around dances around the ring and as i show my uh, my finger tattoo of the number eight which some people confuse with affinity <laughs> which is written exactly like the ring card from kinshasa yep. zaire from uh from uh ali and and the rumble in the jungle it's 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 also escaping the pressure of the time of people who are going to get ahead of you. So it's your age, it's your wisdom that is even chasing you down and the lack of wisdom thereof in, your, in the people who are standing in front of you and your antagonists. It's that wisdom saying, I'm wiser and now is my time and this is the only time that I can do this thing that I have to do. Exactly. And that is, that is the preeminent, I think, existential theme in man's work. And so... When you, when you kind of have that front-loaded in your brain or, or stuffed in the back somewhere, um, it's easy to see, I think, his attraction to Last of the Mohicans vis-a-vis time um, as a vessel for this theme for a couple of reasons. The first is, um, I think the thing that haunted me the most, that really stuck with me the most, uh, comes, I guess, right before the big ending that we're supposed to be talking about, besides yes. all, of this, all of these pretensions, it is the Huron Sachem. Yes. Sachem, Sachem. I'm not sure you pronounce it, um, but uh, the line where he says, "The white men came, and night entered our future with him." Our council has asked the question since I was a boy: What are the Huron to, to do? do? Uh, the sense of this co- almost cosmic ticking clock of uh, a ticking clock of extinction, mm-hmm. and part uh, a huge part, you know begins to reveal itself throughout this I think especially the second half of Last of the Mohicans and explodes to the fore in these final 12 minutes is a portrait of a people in the midst of colonial genocide this is as the title says this is the last of a people and it's a it's also a people reckoning with that knowledge it's a people reckoning with the idea that life is short and whatever time you get is luck. And, you know, man himself even said during the production of this film, he, he asked this question. He said, how do you continue with life when you know your future is gone? The future of not just yourself, but your people, mm-hmm. your entire people. And so isn't, isn't this film and especially the, this wordless explosion of gorgeous silent filmmaking in his last 12 <laughs> minutes, it's just his overarching time is luck uber theme yes writ large is 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 almost almost like a musical yes uh a symphony rather um taking all the interiority of his his you know street level criminals that are musing the same thing and just exploding it across the populace of an entire people and I never saw that before. I never noticed. I mean, I, I obviously didn't notice it when my dad showed it to me on VHS yeah. in ni- 1993 or whenever <laughs> it was that it came out on VHS. You know, I didn't notice it um, when I was in college, but I, it definitely hit me this time that this is this is kind of the climax, even though he has this theme in all of his films after. This is the largest expression of his central preoccupation as a filmmaker, the time is luck, and what it's like to be on the very bittersweet knowing end of that knowledge. Yeah, and and to render that as as a gorgeous action sequence with that amazing music, I just that's why he's the man. That's why he's man. That's why he's Michael Mann. That's why he's the man. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I I think also 
what underscores it about this movie is that these people are passing through the forces of time and the forces of change and the forces of their own extinction and and their denial is just movement and i think that that's the that's also sort of etched into his character's makeup it's like the denial is just being on the move it's not sitting still it's not yeah. it's not being caught and i think about it more directly in staying on the move with something like public enemies and um, with john dillinger played by johnny depp is like the that you know things keep on moving he's just trying to stay moving he's trying to stay stationary and when he uh, i'm sorry he's trying to avoid being stationary and when he is stationary that's what ultimately leads to his capture when he's kind of reflexive and when he's kind of paying hubris and getting nostalgic it's like they're the moments that he's going to get shot in the head when he goes and watches a movie that's inspired by him it's this weird thing of like you have to constantly stay on the move and and frank does it in thief so beautifully it's like he sets this life up it's all good and then once he tears everything down he's got to get the hell out of there and so you 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 don't have any closure on that other than you just know that he's going to get the hell out of there and something that is not in let's say public enemies that even that makes the threat of time so much more grave in these final 12 minutes and not just the final 12 minutes but essentially the final the final hour of this film the other thing that hit me and you know i am not a parent i know you are and i'm sure that this probably grabbed you this time around um is so where this is a film speaking of time that takes place in an era where the average lifespan is maybe 32 33 30 36 if you're living in europe (laughs) i I actually i looked it up um but if if you're living in if you're living in colonial america at this time at 17 in around 1750 the average healthy lifespan is a few years past 30 at best right and so what does that mean that means that the the gravest threat that can be posed in a lot of people's minds, I think, would be the death of your child. Now, that's not to say that the death of anyone's child isn't astronomically devastating. Yes. But this is also at a time where you, you have to reproduce as quickly and I'm, as early as you can to I'm prevent 30, your I'm, line from being crushed out. I was going to say, I'm 34, so... Yeah. So technically, I've I've I've, li- I've outlived, I've outlived my necessity in the, in, but, in the summer of '57. But a, a person of your age in 1757, if you were to lose your child at that age, that's it. Hmm. That's that's it for your line, that, or as your seed, as they keep as they say in the film. Um, you know. It's 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 it carry that death of a child carries with it its own incredibly inherent tragedy, but in this time it's that 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 kind of death can be the death of an entire family line, or in the case of some, as we see, it's the death of an entire tribe of people or an entire race of people. Yes, and so the, the these final twelve minutes are freighted with such a monumentally just galvanizing sense of death and of endings and of time and yeah i get it that's the title of the movie i get it <laughs> but at the same time it it it, it the, i felt a pressure on my chest watching this and i realized i wasn't breathing in that final 20 12 minutes because i'm watching all of these these thematic obsessions just come to the surface and we see child after child 
being murdered, uh, Uncas and then Alice uh, and but possibly Cora, and then and you're seeing all these people who are the last of their lines. Even even Magua, the, you know, his family is dead, and you're seeing this bitter blood struggle between all these people who are the last of their family lines or the last of their tribal lines, just struggling to get to the top of this goddamn mountain and survive. <laughs> yes. And and that is such just a bittersweet and beautiful and ugly all at once kind of rendering of the the danger of these times. And also, you know, I'm sure it's no mistake that after this battle with between all these people who are the last of their lines, that the film ends with Chingakuk. Am I getting that right? Chingak- I, 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 that's okay. You're, you're not the first. I know. I know. You can say Russell Means, but his, na- his character's name is Chingachukuk. Russell Means, uh, <laughs> Madeline Stowe, and Daniel Day-Lewis... Um, the film ends with a shot of them, these three people who are the last of their families. But what is also so kind of, oh, God, just knife in your goddamn heart, uh, so bitter, is that we know that Hawkeye and Cora will probably end up having a child. And their white European family is going to carry on, is going to survive. That lineage will continue. And then you look at Russell Means, and we know how that story ends. And it is so heartbreaking to watch and you know watching the whole the the film that comes before that i enjoyed it a great deal but i was like i don't know if this is top tier man (laughs) i don't know if this is you know i i don't know if i would rank this in like the upper third of his work and then you get to this ending which on top of the amazing score on top of the almost inhuman perfection of the action choreography the the beautiful almost silent filmmaking wordless filmmaking what really struck me was like this grenade that he tosses of all of this his film's themes and his career's themes that it it retroactively reaches back into the rest of the film much like a little movie we know and love called heat where the ending kind of reaches its tendrils back into the film and re- and touches everything and reorganizes your perception of everything that came before and you realize oh my god i thought i was going to i thought i was just watching some you know whitewashed american hero bodice ripper movie but no 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 this was something else entirely and so much more devastating and the way the ending twists all of your perceptions and presuppositions and presumptions about what this movie is, it's such a slap in the face. <laughs> yes. And not, 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 not one that you're upset about or you don't feel like you were tricked. You were just, it's, just, it's one of those wonderful movies that when it's over, you're like, oh, my God, that's what the movie was about. I should have guessed given the title. <laughs> but I got, I got so distracted by how almost comically handsome Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe are. I got lost in that story for a while, but oh my God, this, it wasn't about that at all, is it? And seeing that just, it, it again, not to just keep patting him on the back, um, but in case you're listening, Michael, I do love you. Um, 
it i what i don't know it's been a long time since i have seen an ending like this essentially rewrite the entire film that came before it yeah and made me make me have to hit stop and start all the way back over and rewatch it right away i had to watch it all over again just 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 i had to see the ending to truly see the movie and then i just watched it right all over again yeah i think i think you are so spot on that the the lens of the ending reframes the film and to earn the ending and that's where you see the the artistry in the architecture of how you build to an ending like that and one of the very key things that i wanted to say is it's it's, this isn't the last eight minutes of the mohicans the reason i say the last 12 minutes is because i wanted us to be sort of in the thick of the sashem's judgment because i genuinely believe that those words that are echoed through the choice the, the multi translation that duncan has to do between french and to english with the the, the sashem and and magua watching magua then curse out his huron sashem in french in french no less doesn't even doesn't even give him the dig the doesn't, respect it doesn't give him the respect to speak part. yeah he'd, he'd rather curse him out and that is that's where you start to underscore in my mind, it's that, that's where you start. Like this ending says, you you don't you know. Th- there's that. <laughs> there's a really perverse Wayne Grow line that I almost think is applicable to this. It's like you don't know what this is, and and you and don't know what this is, you do don't you? know what this is, do you? And that's what that's what this is about to happen. You don't know what this is, and that's Michael Mann in that moment, in that decision, in that judgment, and then that final trade off with Duncan. You know, be, being self sacrificial. It's like you don't know what this is, and so. We've seen this trio engorge itself to six people and survive the French-Indian War for you know a good hour or so. And then you get to this final moments of this movie and the stakes so rapidly like reveal themselves. Like Duncan is dead. You know, he's burned alive yeah. at the stake um, uh, in, in, in uh, a gratuitous way and he, he's had to be, you know, in mercy shot by Hawkeye. They start streaming up the hill. Eric Schwig's Uncas is running up the hill. Uncas is dispatched by Magua at his most dissatisfied and robotic. Alice mm. uses her final act of agency. And, like, we're still... The, mi- the, oh, the only act the of only, agency, yeah, agency oh, that she has in the whole film. Too, she gets up and leaves the room when Duncan and Cora are arguing. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. And, and, and that's not a critique. You know, I, I know that um, Fran in her episode noted that this was a time when agency was simply what agency was available to women at this time. It was essentially this either take the, take the literal hand with blood on it or take a leap. (laughs) That that was, that was, that, that, that's what you have. And (laughs) can we just really, isn't isn't it nice though? Also to at least have the candor in that moment that man has with going, at least you see the blood on Margo's hands because the choice for many women at that time was you were re- literally reaching to a man who had blood on his hands, but he was just dressed as a British officer <laughs> or he was dressed exactly. as a colonial exactly. lord or something. And uh, he's a suitor. He's got blood on his hands, but at least Margaret has kind of got the respect to just be beckoning you with while it's still dripping. And not just sitting there on a, at, a, at a picnic t- table saying, we'll be the talk of London. Come on, it'll be great. <laughs> oh, such, such, justice such for Duncan scene. too. Chris Tapley, yeah, Chris wow. Tapley punching for Duncan there. I had to respect him. It's a wonderful performance. He gives a wonderful performance. For where's, Steve pretty, Wadding, where's Steve Waddington? Where's Steve Waddington in crime movies? Multilingual, yeah. badass, 
<laughs> like, come yeah. on. Where's Steve Waddington a, in 10 crime movies? I mean, sure. He does a lot with a really thankless role as essentially the stiff. Like, if, if this film was made in the early 80s, William Atherton would have played this role. <laughs> you know? You know that someone has... Please, someone listening who's, uh, like, just go and get some Photoshop and cut William Atherton's face onto, onto poor Steve Waddington as, as Duncan. Oh. So As he's good. getting the marshmallow man uh, falling all over him, put him in front of like a pyre being burned alive. Oh, um, my but God. Just, as we're talking about this, uh, let's just stop for a second and think about what a fucking assault on the senses it is from the moment he is. Uh, man does not hesitate in that moment when, um, you know, uh, Hawkeye's like, did you tell him, you know, did you and, tell- and they pull Duncan away. There's no, there's no buildup. There's no preamble. There's no, hey, let's milk the drama, and we'll 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 see them putting together the twigs and the sticks and the dry leaves and sparking the stones to set this aflame. It literally, there's just a cut to Cora and Hawkeye running up an embankment, and then boom, Duncan's just burning alive and screaming, and that. And but he's the, already that is done what it. Kicks this off. Yeah, well, he's already done it. That's what I love is when Hawkeye goes, "Did you tell him? It's done." yeah he's he's out he's outside the loop we jump ahead of him in that moment and i think we leave him behind it becomes so frenetic it is like the last hour of fury road crushed into essentially a 15 minute chunk on fast forward it is it is this is such a you know annoying critic term but it is it's just breathless it doesn't stop and it doesn't and it's breathless because it doesn't allow you to breathe because duncan he's burning boom he's shot in the chest then they're running then they're chasing after alice it, it, it is i you know I, I dare you to watch this movie at home and not be like clutching a pillow and kicking your legs and falling over to the side like you're dodging uh bullets yourself it is such just a wild ratcheting forward and again and this it, is already it's, it's, it's you've modular got to remember, it's you gotta remember this is already in a movie where you've already had the absolutely chilling moment where the egg where, where the british exit the fort with the yeah. with the mohawk soldiers and then you've got those like spellbinding shots of Margua in full war paint with Huron war parties just stalking wordlessly in the in the woods. And then you see like that you've already had that epic chaos. You've already had an epic fort battle. You already had epic war parties. And then just when you think you, you can't have had enough, like even though the scale is smaller, the 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 profundity and the sort of exponential weight of every single frame is just it it's it's like unbelievable it's unbelievable how much it immediately turns up all the tension all the power all the movement and and the 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 motion is you know as we talk about in silent films i think one thing i want to sort of underscore because you know if you're listening to this episode uh, travis and i are talking in one of the final episodes <laughs> of the series it's just like the emotion when we say silent films i think some people have used that as a shorthand for a critical shorthand but it's like everything is blown up um, in silent cinema, so like if you're not as familiar with it, it's like you have to be bigger. Emotions are bigger. Scores are bigger. Pratfalls are bigger. Like everything's You've bigger. You got to push everything out of the screen to every, the back of the room. Everything has to be bigger. And so what is marvelous is that you can still have this really authentically, um, uh, authentic and sort of modern uh, as far as uh, as f- modern as far as 
method um, of performance and of acting and of, of rendering that, but also then in this silent moment is to like push everything out of the back of the screen, make it bigger, make it more pronounced without losing, without making it feel like it's too forced. Like it just feels like it's the way the score propels it, the mountain going up, the scale just all sort of goes, it all just sort of is happening before you realize that that's what's actually happening. And you know what I want to do right now? I'm going to talk. Here's <laughs> what I want to do. You right want to watch now. it right now, <laughs> <laughs> Blake? I'm going to call you back. Uh, no, let's let's do like a little record scratch moment. Let's stop. Let's stop where we are in our tracks right now. Let's get this out of the way. I want to talk about Magua. That's what I want to do. I want to talk about Magua for a Fucking minute. love Magua. Let's, let's 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 get to him. I first off, I I wouldn't call him a villain. I agree. I don't think we. I, I would say he's an antagonist. Yep. Um. Which is not to say that I I do not sympathize with Magua. I have empathy for his pain. I agree. Uh, but I, I will call him, but yeah, I, I think it's, it would, and he reminds me of all people, you know, again, to show how, how much this film truly is interlaced with the other films in the man filmography. He makes me think so much of the Tooth Fairy in Manhunter in that he is not someone that was born evil. He's no. not a sociopath like Neil McCulley. He is not, um, you know, he's not this this emotionless demon like Tom Cruise and Collateral. He is someone who has pushed past sanity into his own kind of monstrousness as a way to cope with that push, with surviving yeah. that push. And the pain of being the one who lives as opposed to all of his loved ones who, 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 who were lucky enough to die, not to say that dying is lucky, but to not have to live and carry the burden of his, the agony that he has to live with and let twist him into this monster. You know, what's, what's, um, what's Hawkeye say? Magua's heart is twisted. Marcus he Harris. would make himself into what twisted him. Yes. And he's, be, he's become and you the know force what? of, monstrousness you know, even sadder is that uh, to that exact line margo says yes yeah yeah because in it, his it, in uh, his mind it's not an insult he's like yes because that's how i'm going to continue yeah. to survive like that's the equation the emotional equation exactly like you said it's like i'm i'm so deadened to the nat the natural emotion or to cultural care i'm just thinking about from like as a cockroach who's just survived a nuclear explosion, this is how I need to operate to survive. And in my mind, trying to distill that into the people that are around me, my war party, the people that are loyal to me, this is how they're going to operate because this is how they're going to survive. And that's the only way that it's going to happen. Exactly. And like all great man, well, both, I was going to say antagonists, but all great man antagonists and protagonists, he's a pragmatist. Yes. He's, he sees what it takes. He sees what it takes. Yes. Uh, to be on the edge, to be sharp, where he's got to be. Where he's got to be. He's literally on the edge yeah. of a cliff where he's got to yeah. be <laughs> in this movie. And West Studi, man. West Studi. Um, Honorary you know, Academy Award winner this year, West let's just, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. And let's just say something. It takes a lot to give the absolutely finest most perfect performance in a film that also stars Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, yeah. Is Dwar there another he, he instance? He, can, can... he dwarfs him. Yes. He dwarfs him in the end of this movie. Uh, no, no slur against uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. He's Big ups no to slouch DL. in the acting department. Big ups to DDL. But Wes, 
it he no pun intended runs circles around around Daniel Day Lewis in this film. He gives the undeniably best performance in this film, okay. one of the best performances in the man filmography, and one of the most interesting antagonist performances of the 1990s. There's something so exquisitely tragic about his blankness, Damn. about his thousand-yard stare, about the undi- surely the undiagnosed PTSD that oh, he yeah. is that there's, he is there's a lot struggling of beneath yeah struggling beneath the boot of and what he does with such minimal minimal action and characterization you know i know that you spoke about it in the first episode but i i i i, I have to bring it up again the hand the hand gesture when alice is pushing herself back towards the cliff and they're both spinning around each other and the camera moves with them which weird coincidence just parenthetical aside here those are the exact same camera moves and camera cuts as Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer in another film from 1992 Batman Returns when they're walking (laughs) when they're walking circling the birdcage in the penguin's bedroom those are the exact same camera moves it's really bizarre and I've totally ruined this moment of Last (laughs) Mohican because now you're going to go watch that and you're going to see Incidentally, incidentally, trying another to fucking get, uh, movie. Michelle Pfeiffer in the stack. I, it, incidentally, a movie from 1992 that I fucking adore as well. Batman Returns, a great Batman movie. Oh yeah, it's, it's perfect. But we're, we're, we're people are tuned in to listen to uh, tuned in. My God, people are streaming this to hear us talk about Last of the Mohicans, and we're talking about how perfect a Batman movie Batman Returns is. But coming back, coming back. I like how you think – sorry, I'm going to continue just to pause for a moment. I like how you think that this show, that's like an unrestrained digression. Have you listened to One Heat Minute? The digressions are (laughs) much steeper than that. I think you've been on there a few times. That's that's true. (laughs) And my God, this is not intended to be a shameless plug, but the digressions that are coming on Inherent Vice or Increment Vice, excuse me, my God. We have an episode about blowing bananas, but that's, 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 that's in the future. To my point. This performance of his, the what really grabs me in this moment, it's it's not it's not the way he twists his face away from Uncas's blood spatter, the way a man walking through the rain might do, just not even annoyed, just shaking it off. It's not that. It's not it's not even the battle sequences where he doesn't even have a facial expression against mm-hmm. Uncas because he knows he's won. He knows he's the superior fighter. He has no doubts. The little dance he does as he waits for Uncas to come at him. What gets me in this sequence more than anything is the blank curiosity with which he observes raw humanity in the form of Alice choosing to die rather to, than live with someone like himself. And I think so many lesser actors, so many lesser performers would have milked that and made it a huge moment. Uh, either make showing how how empty and negative he is and angry he is, or almost joyous that uh, Monroe's seed is or one half of Monroe's seed has been destroyed. But just instead, he just watches curiously, almost like a cat would do, you know, playing almost with its prey. He's fascinated because he's witnessing something he doesn't have anymore. He's watching raw humanity process the most existential choice a human can make which is stay or go to be or not to be uh time is luck leave now he's watching that play out in front of him 
And when she leaps, or when she falls back, rather, she, he, he, it's not that he's even surprised, but what, what does he get? He gets the ripple. You know what the ripple is? The ripple is in Collateral, which is a movie I know is not your favorite man film. It's a, but uh, a hey, hey, it's, look, this is what I would say to everyone. It's, it's wonderful. I, I really love, I think it's a terrifically and horrifically underrated um, uh, uh, terrifically appreciated, but also horrifically underrated Tom Cruise performance. I really like Collateral. I really do. I just uh, well, that's, not, I, I wasn't saying you hate it. I just it's know not it's one not, of my faves. It's, it's not your heat. It's, it's, it's not it's, your heat. No, no. Uh, but there's in that film. There's the ripple. It's my favorite. It's my favorite moment in the entire film. It's in. Uh, it's when Tom Cruise has spent the past twenty minutes bonding with Daniel, the jazz man in the jazz club. And they're they're talking about playing with Miles Davis and and Vincent played by Tom Cruise. His mind is blown. This guy met Miles Davis. He played live. Um, and in the end, though, he's tasked with killing Daniel. It's his job to kill him, and he does. And he holds Daniel's head in his hand as he puts a gun to his head and lets his head fall into his hand against the table. And for just this one vertiginous woozy moment. Vincent looks like he's going to throw up. Mm. It's a, it, he just kind of he leans forward, and for just a moment he feels a tickle of humanity. He's a total sociopath, but for one moment, because he's been cruising around with Jamie Fox, he's become a little bit infected with Jamie Fox's humanity. And I feel like you see the the embryonic portrayal of the ripple in yes. the man filmography. In this moment with Magua, he watches her fall, and there is just the slightest ripple, as you see just a just a wafting of her humanity hit his face as he realizes this woman just made a choice to die rather, rather than, than to be with me, rather than rather than live with me, rather than be sub a man who himself is, is subjugated or, or threatened with life um, under subjugation watches a woman re- die rather than be subjugated by him and that moment how that it, it, I'm, I'm running out of words here just <laughs> thinking about his face because it is such a smart performance and he doesn't overplay it he doesn't underplay it he just watches her fall but there is this this not a horror not a confusion but just it's a curiosity. The last, the last little ripple of humanity just goes through his face in that moment. Yeah, and that, that's what that's what breaks my heart is because that that what that shows us is that I think Magua is a man who deserves to die. But when he he does die a few minutes later, there was still that little spark of humanity in him that could have I don't know if I don't want to say it could have been nurtured. It could have been uh, it lit a flame once again. But to know that that was still in there, and that he wasn't a total monster, he was made a monster. It's just he again, he deserves to die, but it's also a heartbreaking death. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a shattering, shattering moment when he does have to go down. Who's been a, until two thousands and Heath Ledger as the Joker? Who's the better villain? Like who's oh, the be- oh, who's, who's who's got the title in the nineties? There's no real other better villain in the entire nineties. That's got the well, time. again, I, I wouldn't use. I, I get what you're saying. But I would, I would still say antagonist. But like in terms of '90s, yeah, it's it's Magua. I yeah, mean, you Magua. It, there is a Shakespearean complexity. 
There is. I mean, it, he is a character right out of Shakespeare. The level of complexity with which Michael Mann imbues Magua is he is a fully formed human. There's a there's this great book called you know Shakespeare: The Invention of the Human. I think it's by Harold Bloom, and it, it posits that you know Shakespeare invented the human being at, in the arts because of the level of complexity that yes. he imbued his characters with. And that's what I can easily say. Mock was, he's, this is straight up Shakespearean shit. Like <laughs> he is a, he is a full on human being. This is some, this is some tooth fairy shit. And he's again, he deserves to die, but God damn, that's what hurts is knowing he deserves to die because you know that he's also a person that was made this way. Even Chingachikook, even Chingachikook gets it. So when he's yeah. about to do it, when he does it, when he when when he's completely when he's completely overwhelmed him and he's outmatched, it's it's not a one of like blood curdling satisfaction or revenge. He's just shaking his head. He's shaking no, his head at Magua. He's, he's it's not, Hannah and Macaulay. Yeah. It's Hannah and Macaulay. It is. It, it, it neither one of them wanted it to come to this. To this. They knew it was going to be one of them, but neither one of them wanted it to come to this. This is just how it had to be, mm. brother. One of us is going down. <laughs> and in this case, in this case, uh, he had the edge. He had the edge over Magua. But um, and I, again, in much like, again, just to show you how this is, this is so much a piece of man's universe, like, uh, like Vincent in Collateral and like Neil McCauley in Heat. When Uncas, or excuse me, when Magua knows that he's going to die, there's just there's just that kind of resigned self-respect about, you know, I'm not going to throw a fit about this. I'm not going to fight this. I know <laughs> I'm, I'm going to meet it. On, I'm going to meet it quite literally on my feet because I, I, I know what's coming. I brought it on myself and, uh, you know, I'm not going back. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not going to go live under someone else's boot. So do what you got to do. You know, yeah. and, and, and that I love that. And I think that, uh, this is also the first of that ending that we have seen a couple of times since this is the first of those endings in um, the Michael Mann universe where the guy that's getting put down is just like, you're going to have to put me down. I'm not going to stop, but I'm not going to stop you either. Do yes. what you got to do. And you know, God damn, man, what's duty? Give him that Oscar. Give him that Oscar. <laughs> it's about time. It's about time. Yeah. Look, and, I mean, um, people, people can look forward to hearing when I talk to Michael Mann about where Studi in the final episode of the show, what his thoughts are on, his, see his rec- you guys at home, you guys at home here that I was going to bring that up again. How he's when I talk to Michael Mann when I when me and Michael sit on the couch eating Doritos. <laughs> oh, that would be a fun interesting talking about movie. talking about talking about girls. And <laughs> Can I just say one more thing about Wes Studi and Daniel Day Lewis? The other night I was watching on a completely unrelated reason, uh, scrolling through different Scorsese movies, and there were like famous clips, and then I was researching a little bit of Daniel Day Lewis performance, like iconic moments from Daniel Day Lewis performances. And so, even if you just Google that or YouTube that, there's like some fun people have put together like best moments from his performances. And one of my favorite moments that I got to speak to Jordan Harper about, which you guys would have already heard if you've listened to every episode in the series, but if you haven't, um, I definitely recommend coming back. Is that Jordan was really fastidiously obsessed with the way that Magua unfurls his weapons to face Chingachgook. You know, I'm sort of doing the gesture yep. right now yeah. to Travis. He does that little dance. He does sort of like right. a little shoulder roll, something like he's, yeah. he's opening his body up, he's loosening up, he's getting ready to take him, and he kind of assumes for that brief moment that oh, I'm just going to do exactly what I just did to this guy's son, but he's a bit of a wily old fox, uh, Mr. Chingachgook, Russell Means, um, there. And so there's this beautiful moment where he does that. Ladies and gentlemen, please go back to 
Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. And have a look at <laughs> and have a look at how Bill the Butcher. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Have a look at how Bill the Butcher just presents his weaponry prior to one of the many uh, portrayals of gangland warfare. And I would argue that the biggest tip of the hat for Wes Studi's Magua in the history, in the history of his his entire career, is that Daniel Day Lewis, his co-star, essentially. Uh, what do, what do they say? Art is not theft; it's inspiration. Is inspired directly by his co-stars' yeah. unfurling yeah. of weapons and presenting them to a forthcoming enemy, as Bill the Butcher in that moment. Because I, I I'm I'm going to do this. I don't usually do this, but I'm definitely going to go onto Twitter um, at the culmination of this episode. So check it out if you've you've clicked on the link and you've listened to it. In in the coming days after I've talked to Trav, there will be a side by side comparison of those two things. Where's Judy unfurling his weapons, Daniel Day Lewis, and it might just be in a loop. A few times for people to check out, uh, and be it'll be a, it'll be there right after the gif of uh, William Atherton being burned alive <laughs> while covered in marshmallows. <laughs> but um, one more thing I want to say about how, in retrospect, stupid I am for not thinking that this film fit in with the the Michael Mann filmography is something that makes this such a Michael Mann film, especially, especially in this ending is it's for lack of a better term, extremity. Mm. Um, his man's films are films of extremes. Uh, the extremes that people are pushed to in life due to their choices and the consequences that those choices generate. Uh, but also the extremes of their particular and unique passions and skill sets which is, and I think it's why he's so attracted to uh, stories about criminality, because yes. that's a world that lends itself so easily to the elements of consequences and extremes and highline skill levels. Yes. Uh, but it also, it makes a lot of sense here. Um, so many of his films are about criminals and outlaws seeking refuge in a world of lawlessness, you know, whether they're actual highline criminals or they're, they're cowboys like, or people that think they're cowboys like Wayne grow. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot about, there's a quote that man has, a, you know, about the, when he was making this film and he was talked about how, uh, the frontier attracted the poorest of the poor, uh, who were eager to escape lives of indentured servitude. I mean, when you hear that and you hear someone, you hear Hawkeye say something like, I don't call myself subject to much at all. Yes. Don't you think don't you think of Frank in Thief? And don't you think of Neil Macaulay in Heat? I don't call you know, myself don't, subject to my show. It, that line should be just as interchangeable with any of his characters as time is luck. Yeah. Because the, and so this this milieu, as as much as we might not associate it with the rain slicked streets and the downtown shootouts of his modern his modern set films this setting is perfect for michael mann to, for for him to enact this exploration of these ideas that he's always returning to and frankly it's a it's a fresh way for him to do so um you know you know he could make a million films set in los angeles uh about you know criminals doing the same thing but setting it here it, it it gives it such a fresh and unique twist, especially when he marries it to those other themes that we talked about, about the end of things. Yes. Because that's the end of things is such a natural consequence to extremity and to lives of lawlessness. And I think if there's one thing 
that does set this apart from his other films. And I think it might be the thing that's a little hard to define, but it's what maybe trips people like me up at first is that um, beyond the setting, the timeline, which I think this is the only man film outside of public enemies that actually takes place in a different century than the one it was made in. Yes. Um, but what pushes oh, this? Just, just Ali. It was made in 2000, yeah. 99, uh, 2000. Yeah. True, yeah. true. 2001. True. Yeah, true. very close. Yeah, you got me. Thought I was being clever over here. Blake caught me. <laughs> um, but what, what I think the reason it's, this gets pushed to the outer limits of his filmography is its tone. Because even the keep is in, oh God, no pun intended, keeping with, with man's overall kind of the tone that we come to expect from him. Yes. But um, what's different about this film is while all of his movies, they all have this extreme dark romanticism on an almost operatic level being lived out by these thoroughly larger-than-life characters who are all seeking what man frequently refers to as the heightened experience yes. of their life. If you've ever listened to a Michael Mann commentary, you know that phrase. Um, and that dark and bloody... But that, that dark and bloody romanticism in the search of the heightened experience of their larger-than-life lives is frequently tempered and brought... and kind of kept down by this very postmodernist Melville-esque cool groove machismo this this icy veneer that tamps down and it represses yes. these heightened emotions and that actually that creates this amazing fission at the heart of all of his films but what makes mohicans so much different from all of that what makes it so different is there is no repression in this film there is no cool ass jean-pierre melville icy uh, uh demeanor here this is man's very wild-hearted romanticism married to an extraordinarily hot-blooded uh, uh, film and tone. <laughs> yes. This is just, it is a full-tilt boogie bodice ripper of <laughs> atom-splitting passions that are so catas- they're so cataclysmic. You expect like these fault lines to tear through the earth every time Daniel Day-Lewis's eyes happen to brush past Madeline Stowe's like, like, a, like an errant finger brushing up against a thigh or something like that i mean look, i mean my god like i'm looking at you miss you i, oh, I was gonna I, say you wrote you wrote so beautifully about the flagrant and sort of uh, magnetic eroticism of the american remake of breathless uh which which uh, is a terrific piece and i think about that a lot in just that line exchange how forthright you know it's unashamed it's as bare as daniel day lewis's bare chest to be able to have the confidence to say you know, to, to be able to come to say when you're having a confrontation with someone, I believe that you and I are going to have a very, you know, serious disagreement. Um, and also then to say, what are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. And to have the confidence of that delivery and then to sit in it, to sit in that and watch Madeline Stowe's unbelievable sort of gaze change and pivot with the <laughs> idea of what's what can happen between them. You're like, whoo! This movie, get a bucket of you water, know, Jesus. You know there aren't there aren't a lot of sex scenes in the films of Michael Mann. No, but you don't need them when you have a scene with Daniel Day Lewis and Madeline Stowe in the middle of the night 
lying in a burial ground talking about the birth of the sun and the moon. <laughs> and Chorus says that being in the wilderness of America is more deeply stirring to her blood than any imagining could possibly have been. That is the that is man at his most deliriously, libidinously passionate. <laughs> and I think if I honestly think that's this is man unrestrained. This is man untempered. There is no you know, I don't think he is a director with an affectation. I don't think he tries to be quote cool. His films are yeah. just they're just cool. They, they they are of a lineage with the Melville crime French crime films of the the 60s and the 70s. But what this is one of the rare films that is outside of that milieu and taken outside of that to, man totally unrestrained. He's a passionate dude. And, yes. And I think and I think that that is a little overwhelming. And I think when you add that to a a time and a place that is superficially alien to what we think of when we think of Michael Mann. I, I think that's what throws people. But I don't. I really don't think it's the setting. I really don't think it's uh, the period. I think it's so much just. This is such a sweaty, passionate, overwhelming, unrestrained film that, you know, when you go in thinking, oh well, this is a Michael Mann film. And it just comes on so strong. It, it, it overwhelms you and it kind of shuts you down from it. You have to, you kind of want to push it back and be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know you're looking, I know you're looking at me. I hear you, Daniel Day. I, I but Jesus, I'm seeing stars. But yeah, but I do feel like it is, it is so much a piece of his, of his films with its, its explorations of extremity and explorations of endings. I just think that it does so with a verve and an unrestrained passion and a god again i'm gonna say this no pun intended a heat that is he just does not imbue his other films with and that's fine those films are classics but it is wonderful to see him shade his filmography with this i don't know what you'd call it this emotional temperature that i don't think we see anywhere else with the exception of some pieces of miami vice it's a different palette Um, it's just nice to see the palette being expanded you know we people who talk about michael mann talk about you know talk about colors and temperatures and it's always very cool and it's always very blue and this movie is this movie is green and it is red and it is glowing like embers in a fire like it's just there's a completely different mag- magnetism that is happening there's the the beautiful stillness of a of a red of a red colored bridge that basically doesn't look like it's even in real life. Um, you know, it's, you know, in the beginning of the film, um, in, in the Albany setting, I don't believe it's shot in Albany, but in the Albany setting. And so, yeah, it's, it's really nice to, to see that. And also to see him flex this, you know, this magnificent silent film muscle at the end that is so imbued with all of those, like, I love your word, their tendrils hooking back all of the themes of the movie and beyond. Um, but, but I think there's, you know, one of the things I think I really love about Michael Mann and love talking to you about Michael Mann about is that he never wastes an ending. Like an ending is oh god, an ending is so essential, and so many movies falter, and so many movies stutter or stumble into an ending and into a conclusion. But I would so much rather in the finale of The Last of the Mohicans and the finale of Heat to have an ending that blows me away every time like does not even let me breathe um and sort of suffocates me into that finale and then wrecks me 
Um, and I think in these movies and in this run of movies that he has, I think it, it, that's just omnipresent. They just every next film has a banger. It just goes out with a bang every single time. Exactly. He he knows how to stick a landing. He knows how to bring it all home. <laughs> yes. And, he, you know, he does something. And it, it never feels forced. It never feels writerly, mm. which you run the risk of with something like this. But the way he allows all of his endings to be, you know, we've, I've said this with you before about he kind of a reverse Big Bang mm. where it's a it's a it's a coalescing and a gathering of all of the elements that made this film what it is and essentially crushing them together in this big crunch at the end that kind of it sums up and as but as you said yes we both said both sums the film up and but reaches back and rearranges everything and adds a meaning to them that wasn't there and that's why also i think he makes what are some of the most eternally rewatchable films uh in modern filmmaking because his films are better every time you end them and start them again when you come back to heat knowing how it ends it is so much better when you rewatch thief or you rewatch manhunter especially if you slip in the director's cut ending uh when <laughs> yes. you when you watch jericho mile fuck when you watch the keep i like it um, <laughs> He has this thing where even if you're not crazy about the film, even if you're not thrilled with the film, you get to that ending and you're like, Jesus Christ, I got to watch this again. That's what the movie was about. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I was too pissed off that he was he was filming something in the first half of the 20th century with digital cameras. And I wasn't I, I, I couldn't let myself. And then you get see, the, you but, see oh, my Ma- God. It's Bye Bye Blackbird. Oh, you, my God. You see Marianne Cotillard's tear is billy frechette and you're like yeah. fuck this was actually great i need to get back i gotta go i gotta i gotta <laughs> start over start I gotta, again he, and that's 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 one of the many gifts of a michael mann movie is you never feel full when one is over you're satisfied but there's always room for one more you're always able to go you know what i got i got two hours i can watch this again which is exactly what i did when i rewatched this for the first time in a decade for this podcast i got to the end and i'm like it's kind of late, but uh, yeah, what the hell? You know, I'm here. I'll re- why not? And the second time through was so much better knowing oh, this is what the movie is about. It's not about the bodice ripping, which is great. And it's not about Daniel Day-Lewis being, you know, a hunky badass and Madeline Stowe being cool as hell. And it's it's not about like watching, you know, Hawkeye own all of these like British <laughs> namby-pambies. It, it's... Uh, it's a you know it's about it's about the end it's about the end of everything it's about the knowing that the end is coming and what and again it's about knowing that time is luck and what do you do with that time how do you function how do you function under that boot of time and goddamn man it's just it's i didn't expect to say this when i came out but it's another it's another masterpiece it's just another masterpiece well just when you get to the end of a project and especially a Michael Mann project, you go, you, you tell yourself, I could never uh-huh. go back. I could never do it again. But just as you so beautifully and poetically and eloquently and emphatically put, I couldn't resist because it took an ending. It took the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans and took this mini series project again to say, you know, the door could be open. And with you again, I love so much that we've talked about 
endings inspiring new beginnings. So, Travis Woods, it is always a pleasure, my friend, and we are inexorably connected because of one <laughs> minute and upcoming increment vice, but I am so pleased that you could take some time to do the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans with me. I, I would have felt incomplete without you, my friend, so thank you so much. Thank you for saying that, and hey, thank you for giving me the opportunity to realize just what a wonderful bit of magic this movie is. It is, it is it's, it's really amazing, and anyone who has not rewatched it yet, who is listening to this, when this, is, when this episode's over, stop what you're doing, and and go watch something that is really, it's going to change the way, it's going to change the way you watch uh, Michael Mann movies. It's going to change the way, you, maybe it'll change the way you watch movies. It'll certainly change the way you look at Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> well, you know, and, and as we're racing to the end, before we get to the next conversation with Michael Mann, I, I don't know if I can say I'll never go back. I don't know. You see what he's doing, everybody? You see, he's killing me. <laughs> I don't know if I can say I'll never go back. I don't know. You know, these guys got their tan in North Carolina. Maybe I'll get my tan in Miami. So, in this entire project, I've thought the words from the incredible Blues Brothers movie many, many times. I'm putting the band back together. I'm putting the band back together. I'm putting the band back together. And there's a couple of people... You would have heard in who are staples of the One Heat Minute crew, like essential crew members um, along the way. And uh, this man who I'm going to be speaking to now in this, the second half of the episode that you're listening to today, uh, he's one of those guys. He's quite simply, I think, Australia's best working film critic. There's a few of them that I've spoken to here who are right up there, but this man is just so good. Uh, writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, Monthly, The Age. Um, but his bite-sized, for free, in-your-inbox-every-week newsletter binger is literally the place I go before I decide what I'm watching in that weekend. Uh, he's uh, a friend of One Heat Minute, a friend of One Heat Minute Productions, a Michael Mann aficionado, and he's my friend. He's Craig Matheson. Craig, welcome to the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Blake. I'm just... You know, we've got another film to do, so like, <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> we just when we thought we're out, I've pulled you back in. I've reeled you back in for another Michael Mann movie. Oh, I already was working on my insider material. So <laughs> this is a nice change of pace. <laughs> oh, here we go. This is what's great about this show so far. There's all, some things that are great. It's like every new guest I get on pitches me the next Michael Mann project that I, I'm promising I'm not going to do until I'm doing it. Um, and the insiders, the, this is the first for the insider. The insiders are very tantalizing, a tantalizing film. Look, in this run, what a run that is, Craig. I know you're a Michael Mann fan and you're a bit biased too, like me, but 92 Mohicans, 95 Heat, 99 The Insider, 2001 Ali. 2004 Collateral. Wow. Even 2006, which is now blooming into the like popular culture lexicon Miami Vice, that's a run. It's a run of some really fantastic films. It, it, you know, it's probably, as much as we talk about man so much, he's underrated in terms of that run. Yes. And, and you know, and that time frame, I mean, that's the time of, it was a tough time in many ways for Hollywood and for him to sort of hold it together and 
manoeuvre through the system for almost two decades and leave that body of work in his wake. I mean, that's, well, I mean, it's easy to draw the, the connection to one of the professionals from, a, from his many films who are able to, to do that in their profession. And he's got that same momentum and smoothness in, you know, in the business in Los Angeles. Yeah, back to work. It's that Vincent Hanna. You know, throw the throw the walkie-talkie to the person. I imagine he finishes one project, throws the walkie-talkie headset, throws the the megaphone that you took all action, and just back to work. What's the next project? What's the next thing we're moving into? Um, already wheeling and dealing from one project to the next. So great. But here we are. You and I have talked in detail. I know you're one of the great Heat fans in the universe, um, which is why it was such a pleasure to talk to you um, all the times that we did on One Heat Minute. But... I, I knowing knowing you having spoken to you so in so much detail about Michael Mann, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, where where Mohicans is for you and his canon, how familiar you were with it, because I think in conversations with you, you were kind of a guy that was like had your eyes peeled for Heat before it came out, um, because of his reputation, and so I wonder if that was off a momentum of like having seen Mohicans and having been a you know fan of his productions before then and, and, and sort of where you were at when you first saw Mohicans and where it landed in your sort of, in the canon of, of Craig? Well, I think it was an interesting one for me because it was really the first time I was going to see a Michael Mann film. I mean, up until then, they weren't easy to see. <laughs> yes. And I knew the names and I knew some of the work, but this was a film that was being talked about. You know, I think we're also, if I remember correctly, we're looking at a time when Australian release dates lagged America. Yeah, by a so, lot. You're talking a long stretch too. Like there's still quite a lag sometimes in Oz, a few months now and then. Um, but yeah, this is a time where it was like three months sometimes, four months. Yeah, I remember going to see it in Sydney, maybe Randwick or, or Bondi. Um on a Friday night, it had been open for a day, uh, and just just being sort of locked in my chair, really, just the scale, the contrast of you know having watched Manhunter on DVD uh, on VHS several times, and and being quite taken with that, and then to see this panoramic. Um, period action film, the sense of movement, the clarity of emotion. It was quite striking. I mean, it just, it, you know, the, you could have heard a pin drop in the cinema um, right until the end for a very full house. And it just felt like a turning point. He's like, well, is a filmmaker who's obviously going to do great things on a big scale. This is someone who wants to work large. You know, there are hundreds of people on those screens. And it was just a sense of, you know, there's so much there to take in. And I, I'm pretty sure I was back within a week just for a second take. I would love to. I, I think when, when I hear you describe that, I kind of get like transported and I go, I would love to see that with an audience who doesn't even know it now. Surely there's an, like if you, if you advertise it out there and you had a, I'd love to sit with a bunch of people who just never seen the damn thing. A movie from 1992 by Michael Mann. They all know these 
contemporary crime movies he's done. You know, they'd find the Manhunters easily enough. Thief. Um, you know, it's Criterion for God's sake. Heat. All, all the entire list that we know. But I, I, I imagine that it would play just as beautifully, just as epic feeling as it would in 1992. But I, I totally take your point that the guy who makes this, you know, tangerine dream, you know, uh, previously scored uh, tangerine dream electronic soundtracks, they're vistas, but it's all very modern. Lots of clear lines, not like these big sweeping organic vistas. Um, and even just the, you know, it, it does have the, the hard lines of British soldiers and, and things like that, but it's organic people, you know, it's organic people in these, in, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to civilize in inverted commas, this world. And it's not, it's not taking as the, the civility as, as quickly as they'd like it. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I love that. And so you see it in the theaters, right? 92, 93 ish, where whenever around in the release schedule that Australia gets it compared to the lag at the States. I know in my recollections as a young guy that this like was really popular in Oz, like a really popular movie and so much so that it like translated onto TV. Like I remember it being on TV as soon as it did that cycle, like a year later, you know, at this time, Australia probably still only had like three or four TV channels in existence. Like Sunday night, Sunday, 8.30 p.m. Yeah, it had prime, movie, of the, week. movie yeah. of the week, prime time spots. And, you know, people were recording it onto their VHSs with the ads and having to fast forward through them. Like, that is my recollection of Mohicans. Like, I saw it having to fast forward ads on a tape that my, my dad had made from the Sunday night movie of the week. Like, that's, like, over and over again, that's Mohicans for me. Well, you know, and people were so excited because Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe, you know, it was, that was considered an you know, an amazing pairing yes. from different directions. I mean, you know, especially Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, you know, people were still thinking My Beautiful Laundrette, um, My, left, My foot. left Foot. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then here's Hawkeye as a, a sort of someone who as a force of nature moving through the environment, you know, in a completely different way distinguishing himself. So that just, you know, it, people talked, you know, because the conversation was slower then and, you know, it filtered and it moved through circles and groups, you know, it just, it just built and built about this film. And, you know, you know, it was still like a time when you, when you went to the, to the your video store and it was such a big deal when, you know, there'd be 30 copies, 30 cases up yes. on that new release wall and and because this was the day. And you're like, please have a tape behind it like no one who is a, uh, of a certain age is going to realize and, and everyone who is of a certain age is going to think of it fondly and also like remember the fear of like 30 beautiful crisp last of the mohicans vhs is waiting to be ordered and if you get in there at like the wrong time like post 7 p.m on a friday night it's tough that like that those 30 copies there's maybe one or two left if you're lucky and as soon as they're gone you're out like, God damn it. Next night, get there at like 4 p.m. Try and get the, because they're overnight releases. Try and get in there. Try and get in there early for your planning, for your viewing. But yeah, like that, that's my recollection of Mohicans. I, I, I don't remember, because I would have been really young. I don't remember ever seeing it at the cinema, but I remember it being like, as soon as, I'm guessing my dad went and saw it. 
like as soon as my dad saw it, he, he, it came home with the family and like uncles, aunts, friends, like that was a big movie and a conversation. And so it definitely came home on VHS when I was at the video store and it definitely got watched at Sunday night in the movies. And that was the opportunity for us to record it on our VHS tape. So it was like, oh, this is a big thing because then we can just record it. You can watch it over and again. And we just did. Um, <laughs> and I do remember uh, I do remember distinctly that the Magua heart cutting out scene was like a scene that I was told to look away. It was like, just don't, don't look at that scene. Don't look at that scene particularly. Um, when I come back to, you know, we've talked about preparation and things being completely clinical and set pieces that just kind of are breathtaking. You know, you and I talked about the central centerpiece heist of heat. And I think if you're looking at structurally last of the Mohicans, similarly, the centerpiece battle of the exiting British soldiers out of the fort and the, you know, Magua led Huron slash French combined war party of, um, who sort of pillage those lines uh, when they come out to get the gray hair. Colonel Monroe. Um, that's sort of the central uh, centerpiece of this movie. But as we just were talking about before, you know, a pin drop at the end, every time I've, th- I've thought of this movie, I just can't think of it a more cohesive bit of cinema, almost in, almost of the 90s, um, than from the Sashem's kind of decision-making at the end of this movie, running all the way to the end. It is just a stunning assembly of threads of this story ending being tied up people facing off who you didn't expect. And it is just so completely underscored so perfectly um, that it's just continuing to be profound in every, every way that I talk about it. um, Every person that I interact with about it as part of this show and particularly yourself, like talking through everything that's happening Talk, talk to me, Craig, in your words about this ending. Like, what, 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 what is so magnificent about it? Well, I think what the ending does is it, it draws very tightly back to individuals. You know, through the whole film, as fast as it gets, as many strands as there are, you know, it's always Hawkeye, Cora, the people around them. And even though this is not directly... Hawkeye pursuing Cora at the very end. It brings it back to the individuals and it's almost as if you do and you don't want there to be a sort of finite ending here because, you know, as you've learned of this frontier world, you know, I think as man called it at the time, it's the first world war, the first true world war, you know, you know that it can't end in a picture book style. It can't end as, you know, as much as um, some of the original versions or some of the original adaptations wanted it to end. You know, you know, you know it's going to have this sort of sense of as much as it's linking some people together, it's going to tear others apart. And it just has an amazing ability to distill that sense down into physical movement, into the way the camera holds people, the way the camera sometimes just tracks them. You know, there's amazing stillness at the end, which I think, you know, some of the shots, profile shots, it, it, it overwhelms you. It just carries you inside the moment and just lets you stay there and then let's let them open out again because there's such a great significance 
to this world and how it's changed and forever changed at the end, as well as these individuals are connected at the end. See, I love talking to you, Craig, about Michael Mann, because I think you get something that, and you, you synthesize it there in something that I've been trying to figure out what, what the alchemy is. It's Michael Mann, like just knows innately like it. And, and it's a, it's a very classical sort of filmmaking stylistic technique, which is when to go with the movement in a very natural sense, what is natural, um, you know, as natural or as realistic in inverted commas as we expect movement to be or characters to be in a space that we're watching in a frame. And he knows how to then take that to the immediacy and the interiority of what people are experiencing in the moment. And there's no, and that's the difference. There's no science to like, there's no science to like that, like to going from in the moment to inside a character to out back to like scale back out to like, find the actual navigation and find the sort of organic, like, you know, directions. Okay. This is where I actually am in the scene. Um, and, and there's a, but he just unbelievably gets it. And I think in this scene, it's like underscored and underlined as hard as that has ever been in almost any part of his work, because he's not just doing it for individual characters or two competing forces necessarily it's it's really pronouncing, you know, it's been about Hawkeye and Cora and, and and the people that are interfacing with them all the way up to that decision. And then all those individuals get their own moments. So then you're splitting out into as brief as it is Duncan's moment, then Uncas, you know, then Magua, then Alice in reference to Magua and their interplay before Alice's decision. And then Magua's, you know, Magua's actions then cause, you know, unleash the tidal wave that is Chingachgook coming after him. And so then it's just those things all interfacing together and all splitting out. And so you then, the the cleverness of it is as it's layering all these things back together, it's like then giving each of those individual people and storylines their moment of air and their moment of elevation to that next level where you're going, all right, this is movement it's being distilled. We're ascending to the top of this mountain, but at the same time, like just being able to like, whatever that instinct is, you know, Dove Honig. So huge credit must go to Dove Honig. who's one of Michael Mann's most frequent collaborators as his editor in conjunction with the shots that are done by the magnificent Dante Spinotti around just knowing the difference. Like, in it's 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 literally getting down to frames of a frames of a second like inside the 24 to decide how many frames are essential in those little microcosmic moments for each of those characters as they're ascending that mountain before just letting it play out and us understanding how it's moving no but it's you know it's you watch it now you watch the end now and you think you know, it always strikes me that one of the bizarre things at the time was people were talking about, oh, is this film going to be like Dances with Wolves? You know, <laughs> which <laughs> is kind of a staggering concept now, but people didn't have a lot of reference and, you know, they weren't sure where it was coming from. And then you see it and you just think, well, maybe it's, a, in fact, 180 degrees from Dances with Wolves. Um, and, and the wrong film won, you know, Oscars and the right one didn't. Um, 
but you know, it's you're watching those scenes at the end, and I think you know what strikes me is also that this is the time when and you know history, the way history was looked at was changing, and you know that whole great man of history theory was being put aside by historians. They wanted to look at communities, mass movements, change on a sort of local level that became sort of big enough to become the history that we talk about. And I think this film is full of the people at the coalface of history. Yes. And, you know, and especially because, you know, and I think Man said this at the time, this is such an unknown period of history. I mean, this is really the precursor to the American Revolution. It's, it's this war between two European powers fought in the New World. In a in a in another people's territory that's already being taken from them, you know it involves this incredibly complex economic realm, for example. So there's all these things that are there, and then at the at the end, it's six to eight people who these circumstances have pushed together over years and over decades, but also over a few days and a few hours. So to balance all that, I think is is quite amazing because when you watch it, you're always you always feel that depth, but yet you're never held back by it. And you know, there's a perhaps what it has more than anything is a certain lightness. Yeah, a sense that it's that it's moving within you, and that the characters, you know, this is the moment in there. This is this huge moment of change of flux. And of that, and so even the clashes have this sort of this sort of feeling that something greater is always moving beneath the surface, and to sort of to go from the micro to the macro, and then back to the micro at the end, I think is quite exceptional. And they each sort of inform each other and and add to each other as the film sort of moves through that sort of quite concise running time. Yeah, when you think about, you know. <clears throat> One one thing, just to address your comment and dance with the bulls, I've since had a great outlook ever since speaking to Chris Tapley, um, who people would hear in the second episode of this miniseries, Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, but he talked to me in one of the final episodes of One Heat Minute. And he said, I said, isn't it a travesty that Heat wasn't even nominated for an Oscar? And Chris said something to me as a almost 15 to 20 year veteran of, of being an Oscars expert and pundit for Variety, like the biggest publication mm. in the world. And Chris said, no, it's unsullied. It's unsullied by the Oscars. And I love, I, that's now my phrase. It's like, look, some movies escape unsullied. And in the test of time and in the test of like culture and, and when we go back and revisit them and, and they're thought of as like legitimately jaw-dropping classics, there are a lot of them that are completely ignored by Oscar. And in fact, we, we shall call those the unsullied ones because uh, this is very much in that realm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think you're so right on the. Um, there's there's something about making sure that you're doing honor and historical justice, like taking a a modern approach to historical specificity, but never losing sight that you're making a, an epic that's ultimately what he's making. But I think when you, uh, when you also make a movie of this scale, the assumption is just like dances with wolves, the Oscar winner is that you're going to make a movie that's four hours long, this big bloated 
thing. And even in all of my research and multiple interviews and director's cuts and things like that, you know, there's only circa five minutes or so that has ever been insert, reinserted back into the movie. So if you look at the um, the Via Vision Ultimate Cut of Last of the Mohicans that's just come out in Australia, or if you're in the States, there is a theatrical version, then, and then there's the direct definitive edition. They only differ in five minutes of runtime. And apparently, there was only ever a two-hour runtime version of this movie. And I think the final director's definitive edition is like an hour and 15. So not really that much missed miss the the, the end product um but i think there was other stuff that maybe aspirationally they had thought about shooting or had done some test shots or just never quite finished it that exists and that's like it seems like the parlance of the time as well of like if you're going to make an epic it has to be three hours it has to be an intermission it has to do it like it sort of it defied the rule of like 90 minutes was the like the standard runtime but I think that also adds to its power. It's like it's so clear on what it's trying to do with these characters that it just doesn't bust like it just busts all the fluff that would be in an epic that's like, oh, I'm going to sit here and ruminate. It's like, no, it just gets that the tempo of this whole thing needs to finish. Like I just feel like in the lead up to the end of this movie when Hawkeye is pursuing Korra, like that could have been like months. Like it, in another movie it could have felt like, there's multiple stops along that journey. There's encounters between Magua and Duncan and Cora and Alice and they're facing off. And then there's, you're flashing back to the Brits who are going, what the hell happened? And there's another scrap between the French going, oh, Magua left. Like you feel like there are these things that could happen all along the periphery of this story, even in keeping with what it's trying to do. Just goes not. We're just like, this is the story. The story is that these guys are going to do this. They're going to be you know, confronted they're going to do that. And and one final thing that I think we haven't raised too much, we've talked a lot about political structures in the show, but I love how you said economic considerations. Like what movie in 1757 has ever really posited that Native American cultures, one of a multifaceted series of nations that are on that ground, are so sophisticated, they kind of know that, no, the Dutch are better traders than the Brits because the Brits are going to screw you out of this money and the French are going to probably screw you out of that as well. So if you go to the Dutch, this is the currency they trade in. This is the fairness with which they... <laughs> it's like, there's some of these things that just drop like bombs in this movie and they just walk straight past them. It's like, bang, we're going to drop that. They just walk straight past. And I, and I think that that's so right. Something I hadn't spoken to, to, to many people about. It's like, yeah, just even the currency thing. Like, oh, I never know now that I've watched this movie like 50, 60 times that, yeah, like I now know the Dutch are better traders in 1757 than the Brits. Like who, who would have... Who would have thought that? I think at the time, you know, I think as Man researched it, you know, the Huron basically controlled the majority of the world's fur trade. They were both trapping themselves and also the intermediaries between the Europeans and the tribes further to the West. So, you know, I think one of the things he does that's really, really great is he shows you that the original frontier almost the one before nation-states came along, before European nation-states came along, was much more integrated and much more cohesive. You know, remember those scenes very much at the start, the, the um, you know, just after the militia call-out. You know, that's a really integrated community that's sort of seen along there. There's connections 
that's come from that fur trade and before the you know the whole political systems have come as well. Um, and I think you know it's this classic man, isn't it, to have so much knowledge, but to know which parts just need to illustrate the characters and which ones just sit in the background. Um, so you know it's always that balance that he, he nearly always gets right. Um, you know, as much as, <laughs> you know, one of the fascinating other things about this is the, is the amount of stress that went into making the film, you know, oh, yeah. to get that detail right. You know, the, the department heads who, um, you know, didn't finish their tour of duty, you know, the strike. I, lo- I, lo- I love that you're bringing this up because, you know, for folks who are now listening to Craig and I talk, uh, this is the 10th episode in this mini-series, The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans. And so if you're listening to this, you would have definitely heard in episode 7, Jedediah Ayers and I talk about a Jed who's a phenomenal, uh, uh, let's call him a hard-boiled blogger and author um, of a really terrific b- book called Peckerwood, and you'll see him around the traps writing some terrific book reviews and film reviews. And It's just a great film noir mind. But Jed pointed me to an interview that actually happened um, on this publication called MohicanPress.com with the actual man himself, Russell Means, who played Chingachagook. And and, and so in the process of this show, if people, you know, if this is your first episode, welcome. But it was a tumultuous um, shoot. Uh, and you would expect that with you know not like some somewhere in the in the realm of nine hundred Native American actors playing soldier like playing variety of soldiers whether you know it's um, Mohawks and Hurons or Abenaki or whatever whatever versions of, of the different tribes peoples that are that are interacting here because there might be more in the background that I haven't come across yet that they were trying to display. Um, but what you'll find out is that not only was it tumultuous because Michael Mann had originally had a cinematographer in in replacement of Dante Spinotti who was fired and Dante Spinotti speaks about it in detail uh, about coming onto the show and and, and 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 taking over because things were taking too long other department heads strikes according to uh, Russell Means with conditions of the extras and the soldiers and then representatives like Russell Means and Daniel Day-Lewis also taking part in the strikes so that people would get paid more and their conditions would be corrected. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an incredible it's an incredible story. It's an incredible and it's incredibly fascinating um you know, it's incredibly fascinating to hear the tales of bureaucracy sometimes on movie sets because the great thing that I love about the Russell Means interview as well is because you've heard uh, you know, for folks who sort of might be doing going down the rabbit holes of researching about this movie as we as they're listening um I've read bits and pieces that it was a tumultuous shoot and I've read bits and pieces more actually after even speaking to Michael Mann, the interview you're going to hear that closes out this show though, about the time that was had on the show, uh, the time that was had on the set and shoot. Um, but Russell Means even says in his interview that Michael Mann's a genius and I would work with him, but the people around him, they just don't know how to orchestrate this guy's genius. Like he has his right crew around him there is an alchemy for the chaos that seems to work. You know, there's not strikes and poor conditions, but he's just thinking about the art and all the other people around him need to help, like, make that vision happen. And sometimes they don't do a very good job of it because clearly people are striking and 
It's a it's a fascinating thing. It kind of is the answer as to why did Michael Mann not make more of these movies? I think the the producer who was on the ground with him, Hunt Lowry, I'd, I, I'm not sure of this, but I think he might have a connection to to Great Wealth, for example. Yes. So you know there was that sort of, and here he was, you know, probably not someone who was used to hearing calls for unionisation um, or dealing with unions at all. Um, so you know there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, I think you know not not to not to downplay anyone's contribution, but I mean I think you know, the original costume designer just basically had a nervous breakdown and went home. Yes. You know, it, and at the scale of probably what they were doing. Um, but, I mean, I imagine in a way that the way Michael Mann worked, worked for the films we perhaps know him best for is partially a reaction to the situation he found himself in here. I mean, I assume he had to, I suppose he had to push forward and just grab the opportunity when he had it. You know, he wasn't, it sounds like 20th Century Fox, you know, Joe Roth, Roger Birnbaum were happy to sign off on the film, but I think there was probably a lot of conditions on him and there's probably a lot of pressure on him to get it right and to yeah. get it done. Well, if they're going to, probably- to your point, they're going to want their Dances with Wolves. Where's our, da- if we're investing in you, where's our Dances with Wolves? And you can see in the jump, just look at the roster for anyone to play the IMDB game. Go look at the roster of people who work with Michael Mann on Manhunter and then go look at Mohicans. They're not all the same. Not at the, not at the, perhaps they are at the end, but not at the beginning. They're most certainly not at the beginning, which is where the bombshells come in, you know? So in the Dante Spinotti episode, episode six, I would strongly encourage you to go back hearing from Dante Spinotti himself that he took over, you know, only a third of the way into this movie as a cinematographer is just like mind blowing. It was actually a movie that was shot in sequence, which is even more crazy because you think of how these movies are put together. They're not always shot in sequence. This movie was shot in sequence intentionally. And Dante Sonotti takes over one third of the way through as the full blown cinematographer coming off another project because they were just going too slow. It was not happening fast enough. And Dante brought in, a very practical understanding of natural light, knowing how fast Michael needed to move, knowing how many setups they wanted to do, and they just ran with it. But you then go to Heat, and it's Michael's main guys all reassembled back together at Warner Brothers. Like his same crew, your Bonnie Timmermans, your Dove Honigs, his entire crew that's been with him for a very long time are all sort of back, and Dante, of course. And there you go. You know, in in a way, making making Mohicans was his time on the on the cinematic frontier. Like really, just having to get across that land, get things done. You know, and I think people forget now that you know there were purely on a commercial level there were questions about him. You know, the oh, keep yeah. had, had been problematic. Um, Manhunter had sort of run aground on the De Laurentiis front, and and you know at the box office. You know, even even Miami Vice, which he's sort of become the guiding hand on, there've been issues there because his vision was moving the show where a very mainstream television network was uncomfortable with. So you know, there's a lot of questions about this guy at the time, and you know, so in a way, Mohicans is a triumph. Absolutely, to, to get it done, it's so good, it works commercially and critically. 
I mean, in that way, it sets him up for the run we talked about at the start. You know, it doesn't start with Manhunter for whatever anyone might say. Yeah, this, um, is, this is showing you what his commercial potential is. I think everyone, everyone could, people who could see what he was doing could see it. But now it was like it, it, it worked on such a wider level. And, you know, and there was just the simple things. I think like people suddenly went, wow, the, the connection between Hawkeye and Cora is authentic and that's affecting. And, you know, it just plays to different, all different people. Like everyone could feel that hook. And, you know, it just worked. So suddenly everyone was like, okay, this, just stand back and, and let him do what he wants to do from here. Or, or he was able to say, stand back and let me do what I want to do from here. It's perhaps a better way to put it. Yes. That's, it, it's one of the, it's one of the things that like, I think shows like this and just explorations into filmmaking, excuse me, explorations into filmmaking, like get underneath the hood of, which is, we, there's that beautiful romantic or tourist view where like someone can come in and they're like the key creative and there's people that work around them, etc., And they're the sort of driving force and guiding light. And then there's the real messy bureaucracy of what it actually is to make a film. And sort of illuminating that in that, like, you've got this deeply creative thing that's super organic, that requires all these creative people who aren't necessarily great business people, who just got these visions of what things need to do, and they have this alchemy and this process, whether they're grips, whether they're lighting departments and cinematographers or directors themselves and actors, and they're all going to contend with, like, Fox wants to make an equivalent Dances with Wolves, and they're using a guy who's most famous for making contemporary crime films. And so you see them go, oh, okay, well, we're going to chuck a Stanley Kubrick cinematographer at him, and we're going to chuck this person at him, and we're going to chuck this person at him, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> like, in the beginning, it doesn't work. In the beginning, it doesn't work. I think what's crazy is that you and I are talking about this. We're... We've barely, we've talked a little bit about the ending, but it's like now you sort of, as we're talking, I'm diving into like, it is actually a miracle that this thing exists in its form. It's not complete chaos. Like it's not just one of those things that is the keep, that they just got another pe- person into like finish and him to wash his hands off in a way. You know, I, I'm sure there were people in Hollywood who were thinking, you know, um, Heaven's Gate was still, you know, the nightmare that circulated through a lot of, a lot of people's minds. It was, you know, there's only a little more than a decade on from that. I mean, you know, a film that has almost Sunk destroyed a studio. A studio. Yeah, <laughs> Michael Chimino. Yeah, and I think I think he was working on, on maybe a thirty US thirty five million dollar budget. That's really sizable for the start of the nineties. That's an investment. You know, that's and when it, when that investment goes wrong, that's that's a huge hit on you know Rupert Murdoch's balance sheet, which. <laughs> as we all know now from history, is something that, you know, does not like to take hits. No. And when you consider that timeline, early 90s, if you're like, oh, what's the inflation? Sundance paid outlandish money at the time. Some movie studios were paying for the rights of movies that were already completed. I think $8 million was the record at a Sundance for a film at the time. 
Like, and this is already a movie that has been produced to pay $8 million for the distribution rights of the movie. And this is actually a big studio, not outside of the distribution contribution they're going to have to make to market the damn thing. It's a $35 million budget to just make it. So that's what conservatively these days, 70 million to make this movie about that. Perhaps more now. I mean, it's, yeah, it's hard to say. And like ninety five, you know, in ninety five, he gets sixty million to make Heat, which is around the same. You know, eighty, ninety, hundred million, whatever the inflation is, it's a lot. It's interesting though, because you know the relationship between, given all that, I find the relationship between Man and Daniel Day Lewis was quite fascinating, because from my reading, it's very clear that once Daniel. Day Lewis was incredibly hard to get, and he had to be courted. You know, there are all kinds of things involved. I think Man made multiple trips to London, for example, where the guy was keeping a complete low profile. I think Man even figured out that Daniel Day Lewis had a had a distant ancestor who died in that war, which was one of the tiny little hooks that he um, laid out there. That you know, you've got a family connection to this in a in a very distant way, uh, fighting for the British naturally. Um, you know, but then once, once Daniel Lewis said yes, apparently he just became, you know, I'm, I'm your instrument. And, you know, there wasn't, I remember reading Madeline Stowe saying that man was a general and Daniel Lewis was a soldier and he just would follow the orders and he didn't expect, you know, closeness or a fraternal bond even. Or you know to be recognised during the shoot, he he was but he was going to do everything that he was asked, and I just you know I remember reading a little tidbit about where they're on set and the journalist is watching and he realises you know after man calls cut, you know all the you know hair makeup people swarm as this as they should do between takes to sort of touch things up. They go to Madeline Stowe, they go to every other actor in the scene, but they know don't touch Daniel. Don't touch Daniel. It's nothing personal. Just let him be, you know. And so the, I just find that relationship fascinating. I mean, I think man just gets that from actors. And I'm just wondering, you know, had he ever got it like this before, though? That's that level, that, that transformation sort of level of watching, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis become someone people just didn't think was possible. You know, I remember reading... Um, Waddington, who, who played Major Haywood, big man. But as part yeah. of the training, he boxed with Daniel Day-Lewis. And he said, Daniel Day-Lewis just wore me down, you know, and he just kept going until I was the one who couldn't fight despite having 40 pounds and four inches on him. And I think, you know, man and Daniel Day-Lewis was just an incredible combination at that time. Maybe, you know, the right time for both of them, I think. Yeah, it's the stuff later that we talk, the the legendary things that he does with Russell Crowe and then Will Smith and then Tom Cruise in sequence. The mm. three other biggest working actors of those days to, to, to go, you know, Will Smith, I want you to for 11 months do voice coaching and boxing training before we even roll a frame. It's just unheard of. And he just seems to have that, once he's got that connection, it's like, 
it must just instill confidence in you is the only thing that I can think of as an actor, right? Like you're so, you believe. You're like, he's going to do this. It's that hilarious John Milius thing about like trying to talk Francis Ford Coppola out of finishing Apocalypse Now when they're in the jungle and uh, Brando's 100 pounds overweight and everything's going to hell and he thinks he's going to go in there and like tell him the war's over. I think he even uses a World War II reference and says he's like going to go talk Hitler down from you know you know his his bunker in Berlin, and then um, he 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 leaves the bunker uh, of uh, Coppola at that time. And the hilarious thing of John Millis and the way that he tells the story, he walks out and he goes, "We can win, we can win!" Like he's like completely turned, he's completely convinced that Francis is a genius, and that's what it is. And that's kind of like that's what Michael Mann does to actors. And and I love to your point is like. There is no role that Daniel Day-Lewis has done with the exception of maybe the boxer afterwards as far as like physical um, uh, commitment to a role that he's ever done that looks anything like Mohicans. And then similarly, like Tom Cruise as Tom Cruise as Vincent, he's done nothing like that ever again. And Will Smith as Ali has done nothing like that ever again. The alchemy of the Pacino and De Niro in the heat is that they have done it a million times before. And they're adding new layers to what they've done in a way. And then there's other actors who've never done anything like it before. So, yeah, it's this... Yeah, I think you're so right. It's like maybe Michael Mann in that moment found, like, how he can interact with, like, a big star. He can take them on a journey and they can look at him like a general. That relationship, maybe he just forges that that hierarchical relationship that just works for him later on in his career, like, forever. Um, um, like, just taking it... Having a transformational thing, he sort of does it with, um, um, uh, maybe a little bit with William Peterson, but probably more so with Tom Noonan as uh, as the Tooth Fairy, as the guy who like yeah. completely immerse yourself like that ends up being the antihero of that movie. But yeah, no, it's a great. It's it's yeah, it's so it's really like I'm so glad as part of this show we've gotten to have like this conversation. It's like it's just. It's just this big, magnificent thing that just doesn't seem to... Like, the more you dig into it from a production level, and the more I research it and sort of start sifting through the dirt, so to speak, of what 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 this movie was about and the whisperings of people being concerned about its success, you kind of don't hear about that because the success usually just has, has almost wiped the slate clean. Um, unlike Apocalypse Now, where it became this huge, you know, industry um, of, uh, of this thing's going to fail, it's going to be a flop. Mohicans sort of came back top 20 of that year, an Oscar nomination and a win, you know, all those sorts of things and, and, and box office money, international box office money. And then it sort of helped wipe it, wipe the site clean, but there were definitely concerns and man, Steve Waddington, let's go into Steve Waddington. How good Steve Waddington in this movie? How good is it to have a movie where F Murray Abraham is just like a bit player? Like what, what is going on? It makes no sense. It makes no sense, Craig. And then you, you, you look through the credits and you're like, Jared Harris? Yeah. I mean, that's starting early. I mean, that's a very early one for him. But I, I really want to come back for a second to Madeline Stowe because, and, and we're right to talk about Daniel Dade Lewis and Michael Mann, but I think what Mann maps out for Cora and what Madeline Stowe embodies is hugely important. I mean, that's, you know, that's a... That's a pathway. I mean, the most, perhaps the most, the person most transformed by the events, the character most transformed by the events in the film is Cora. I mean, this is someone who goes from 
English society to and having no concept of what the frontier is yes. or what happens there. And you know that she'll probably never leave that world again, you know, at by the end of this film. And that she's it's a that sort of shock and the climatization and also a sense of her realizing, I think, that, you know, this is a world where what she knows of what women can or are allowed to do does not apply. So, you know, in that way, it's a hugely forward-thinking film and, you know, sort of points ahead to, you know, sort of much more revisionist um, historical epics or revisionist just period pieces that sort of get under the, under the skin of the era and the conventions of the era. So, you know, just to have that happening for Cora while everything's happening for Hawkeye is, is that's an incredible intertwining of, of sort of of characters and to sort of hold it together. It's amazing. Yeah, I think it, and it walks a great line with Cora because it's not so revisionist that it's on the nose, but it just shows conflict. Like she's so amazing <laughs> to be centered in the conflict of what's happening. You know, when Duncan's like, we'll be the talk of London. Um you can see from the minute one, there's just something about being on the other side of the world in this completely far away place that is totally alien to her at the time. It's accessing something inside her that like would have deadened her in court. And that's the great contrast between her and Alice is that Alice is like, she's got PTSD probably from the boat ride, let alone from, you know, dancing through the middle of the French and Indian war and seeing war parties, massacre troops and all the things that happens. Cora's like galvanized by it. She has to be like cauterized by it. She's into it. And, and so this life taking a sort of, uh, uh, a very period appropriate setting as like a nurse figure and a caring figure in the family matriarchal sort of helping out with those things and, and, and adding value. I love that. I love Madeline Stowe's performance doesn't go too revisionist because that 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 kind of makes it on the nose, but it, it's that it's that perfect balance of going. This is someone who's starting to access those feelings of that this egalitarian society where men and women aren't aren't as beholden to the same hierarchical philosophical class structures and uh, and identities about gender, especially in stark contrast with the Native American nations of people who are just like in movement and like even frontier women, frontier women who are like having a place to see debates between, you know, colonial militia and British monarchists who are telling them that they need to do what they want to do. And the colonials are like, oh no, we're the emerging democracy here. We, we're negotiating with you. You know, you're, you're here. We're, we're in a, a strained partnership, you know. I lo- I love that about her character, and even from the minute when he goes and arrives, like there's such a difference in poise. That's a it's a beautiful scene. It's like a callback scene to, that I think reflects to the rest of her character. Is when Duncan approaches her, Alice is thrilled. Duncan means home. Like he's a representation of London. Oh my God, it's like home. He's a guy who courts women. Oh, it's oh, it's magnificent. Oh, it's quaint. Oh, let's get the hell out of here. Let's go back to London because this place stinks. And Cora is like, oh, Duncan, cool. Like, nice to see you. Like, oh, home. <laughs> this is not this is not the journey. I suppose it'd be like 
for anyone going on like that big first trip of international travel and you go on like a Kentucky tour that takes you to Europe and then like someone in your high school class is there, you're just like, oh, get out of here. I don't need <laughs> you here. This is where I'm discovering who I am. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's a, it's a phenomenal performance. Also, there's an alchemy of her style versus his style too. Like she knows how much collective weight she's got to be, to, to, to counterbalance the stuff that Day-Lewis is doing on screen. Like she's got to be so, it's that, you know, it's the thing I love about Michael Mann movies. It's the thing I love about Heat is like, he seems to assemble this crew of such phenomenal actors that everyone rises. Like there's someone who's yeah. the, a buoyant character. It might be Day-Lewis to start with. And then he's got Wes Studi's Magua, who's like completely like shining the same level of brightness or sometimes outshining Day-Lewis. And then like non-actors, like activists like Russell Means and Dennis Banks, you know, Chingachi Cook, and then Eric Schwieg as Uncas, you know, got Brad Pitt, good looks, you know, as this guy is like super attractive and Jody May. And like everyone just has to rise. Like Steve Waddington, he's so great. It's like everyone has to rise. But yeah, she plays a really difficult progressive forward thinking but very time appropriate because yeah i think i don't know i've just i've heard that a few times in this podcast and fran hoffner said in the second episode and it just really deeply resonated with me about revisionist versions of of history movies especially in relation to women especially for her um was about like when they're just completely outlandish and not meaning to be outlandish but when they're completely outlandish it kind of like takes you out of it like no this wouldn't happen this wouldn't happen at that time but someone forward thinking like Cora, who's conflicted, that feels so authentic and it feels like in keeping with the time. And, you know, and we've talk, we, we're throwing it back and forward and, and all these concepts and ideas. And what does Michael Mann do? He shows her loading a musket before a possible <laughs> fight. Yes. And that's all. And that, that sums it up, you know, the understanding of arms, the, the, the willingness to be part of, of whatever needs to be done to defend the party, you know, the sense of the military history that she bears from her father. And it's all there in a few movements, you know, so. And she, and she just is an opportunist. She picks up a loaded, a loaded handgun and plonks it into her dress. Mm. Just, just in case. Cause if th things get squirrely here, I, I want to have, so I want to have a piece. I want to have something because. It's life or death out here. It's a just-in-case world, that one. I mean, there's, there's perpetually something just-in-case there. Mate, it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. What's the highlight of the movie for you, Craig? What's your favourite part of the movie? Oh, I think it changes. I think it comes with your mood. It might even come with your age. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're a young man, you're thrilled by the battle scenes because they're so piercing and because they have such a sense of chaos and order moving on an individual and group level. But then you get older and you, you see, you know, that the sense of loss is huge um, throughout the film. That and then you, perhaps you get older still and you start to see things from Chingachuk's perspective. You know, sometimes I think the, the, the last, the very last sort of words, the last shot 
the three of them in profile on the cliff tops, you know, at the at the at doing the sort of the burial rites um, for Uncas and uh, I always presumed um, Alice. You know, that's the most striking thing about the film because it it brings that back to something has ended. That idea that you know you hear about the last of the Mohicans and you think, oh, it's this adventure. No, it's about the last of the Mohicans. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, an entire culture has sort of ended in a, in a way at that moment. Um, so, you know, it always changes for me. And I'm, I'm sure my mood would take me back to the battle scenes or, you know, um, for many things. But, I, I, you know, as I get older, I, I feel that there's, a, there's a, such a bittersweet um, taste, a a bittersweet feel to, you know, if these characters are going to feel so connected and fulfilled, it's only because there's so much tearing at them and the world they live in. Yeah, I I think that I would have totally said, well, you know, what's your favourite part of this movie five years ago? I would have talked about just the striking battle. You know, Huron soldiers streaming out of those woods, screeching blood, bloody war cries and and Magua stalking. You know, just from a pure tension perspective, it's just really thrilling. Um, the beginnings of the film, just some of the magisterial shots of the going across the water, just from a pure, like, real cinephile, nerdy perspective. Um, but I... I think it's about, I think it's about this whole movie is about the passage of time and it's the passage of peoples through events that are bigger than them. And in this last 12 minutes, particularly, you know, exchanges between Uncas and his dad, Chingachikuk, and then him streaming away to meet his fate and just how quickly, like, the tale of this movie turns, you know, this trio becomes a sextet right at the beginning almost of the film in like within 11 minutes and essentially maintains that structure until, you know, the waterfall scene and then eventually, you know, the Sashem's uh, decision rights. And then it's, we're in the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans where Duncan dies an unceremonious death, even though it's redemptive. Uncas battles phenomenal odds and feels like he could just wipe out an entire war party single-handedly. And in fact, you kind of want him to, before he just kind of meets the robotic proficiency of Magua's killing machine. Like, Magua has just been programmed to kill, even if he doesn't feel satisfied with doing it. And then Alice lit- makes, you know, this, again, it's that beautiful Antonio, I call it the Antonioni thing that Michael Mann does, both, like, dealing with things that are literal and metaphorical. The literal shittest choice that she possibly has to go off with a guy who she knows who actually has got the blood of the person who she's sort of become <laughs> associated with um, on his hands. Um, and does she go off with him and maybe see if she can salvage his heart and potentially become his bride and travel across this land as a trapper or whatever the case may be? Or does she jump to her death? And in like minutes, the stakes of the world like come crashing down. All the, you know, all the collateral, all the all the things, all the outcomes of this movie, just all the tendrils 
we're all whipped back to this moment where you're just like, you're here. And, and so then the reality of that situation, I think for me is, is part of the entire, you know, the thesis of this project is that this ending is so profoundly powerful because as much as time's passing, as much as they've been able to navigate through these things, like in these final minutes, like the lives of all these people are irrevocably changed. Even trailblazers like Magua. Like I, th- I think there's one character that I look back more, even more sympathetically on in every reviewing. It's Magua. <laughs> it's this guy who is sort of tragically ahead of the curve of, in- of extinction. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't think I could have ever synthesized it better than you did. It's just that, that burial rites moment at the end and these three people in profile staring out to the different futures. You know, that's what this whole beautiful, silent, action, epic last 12 minutes of score and every cinematic and aesthetic trick in the book and acting trick in the book for that matter and choreographing trick in the book. Um, that's what it all like leads to this moment that the re- there is a reality is like shit. The name is so good. And I'm so happy that this podcast can also steal some of that name and, and have a good name for a podcast series as in the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Um, but it is in fact about the extinction of a people. And it's about coming face to face with the, the you're the last of your line. Like that real, the most realist experience of humanity that your seed, like this movie says the word seed more than almost any other movie. Like your seed is what keeps the human race moving forward. And in this movie, it's like, it just comes, we're right at the precipice of it. We're standing on the edge of it that says, no, there is no more. And so you just have to come to this sort of crushing acceptance that this existence is finite. Uh, you know, I, I think good films know how to um, lose all those extraneous or all those extra points they've raised and not have you notice at the end. Great yeah. films know how to take all those same points and resolve them through the individuals. And that's what this, this distinguishes Last Mohicans from so many other films is that the weight is transcendent. It's tragic and somehow it's uplifting at the same time. And you, your connection is never one emotion. Your connection is always multiple emotions in conflict, like the people, and unsure of where it will take you at the end. Well, it took me back to you, Mr. Craig Matheson. Thank you so much for being a part of this little mini-series on Last of the Mohicans with me. I don't think it would have been the same without you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Blake.